So last week we we, we ended with um, we saw Stephen being martyred and him uh, basically his death spurring on a persecution that caused the Christians to scatter out of Jerusalem and into all over the place, uh, just really all over the uh, really the Roman Empire, beginning to go that direction. And so we 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 mentioned verse four of chapter eight last week. We're going to read it again. Um, and tie it into what's going on in the rest of this chapter, at least through uh, verse 24 or 25. Verse 4 of chapter 8 says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For... Unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now you might remember that Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. We saw this in in Acts chapter 1. He says, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For then you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so what we see today is that we're going to see tonight where the gospel is going to Samaria. It's actually going to be fulfilling Jesus' word that this is what he's going to wait. wait. He wanted them to wait for the power to do. They're now going to be kind of pushed out into Samaria. Now, Samaria wasn't very far from Jerusalem. It was probably less than five miles to travel from, uh, I'm sorry, less than 25 miles to travel from uh, Jerusalem to Samaria. It wasn't a very long distance to get there. Uh, but culturally and societally, it was like, like oceans between the difference. I mean, they just, they just, if you remember back in the Gospels, Jesus actually had said, you know, to go preach the gospel to the nation of Israel and said specifically, don't go to Samaria. He told them not to go there. Um, if you remember when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, the reason that parable was powerful was because Samaritans were seen as half-breeds. They were people that were they were people that were kind of birthed out of uh, Israel's captivity when Israel went into the captivity captivity to Assyria. Uh, some went back to Judea and they purposely intermarried other uh, pagan. Uh, women and they created their kind of their their own sort of culture. They even built their own temple uh, there in Samaria, and so the Jews looked at them not like they would look at Gentiles, like oh, you know, you're sorry, you're not one of us. But even less than they looked at Gentiles, you can't ever be one of us was kind of the mindset. They were like unsavable, and so for these guys to go to Samaria was that was a huge deal. In fact, interesting, it says specifically that this is where Stephen went. Everyone's scattered everywhere. And you think, Stephen says, I know where I'll go, Samaria. So he goes where nobody else wants to go. And as he goes there, it says specifically that he's preached, everyone's preaching the word. It says that he preached Christ when he went to Samaria. Now, this is not saying that somehow these guys did, they were kind of giving Bible studies, but he was just evangelizing. That's not what it means. It's the idea of what their message is. When these guys went everywhere preaching the word, they were preaching Christ. But it's interesting that it says specifically of Philip that he preached Christ because it's something for us to, to keep in mind, especially for you guys who want to teach the Bible. 
to teach the Bible, to preach Christ, or to preach the Word is to preach Christ. Jesus himself said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. So he goes where nobody else wants to go. He preaches Christ to these people. And God uses him pretty radically. It's pretty obvious that his preaching was empowered by the person of the Spirit. I mean, the fact is, God's using him to do many miracles as he's preaching the gospel. And, and these people are blown away by this. Now, this, he's not the only guy that this happened with. Paul talks about a similar thing happening when he goes to, to the Gentiles in Thessalonica. Paul says to them, he writes to them, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, I bring this out because it's important to recognize that God isn't calling us. God was not calling uh, these guys. He didn't call the apostles just to give out information. The idea was not just to say, look, here's some missing information that you need. If that was the case, if all God wanted to do was just say, here's information, then the best way to evangelize would just to be every week put a, you know, a flyer at everyone's door. Just do that. Don't do evangelism any other way. Don't waste your time. Just do that. Nothing wrong with doing that. It's a good thing to do. But if that's all it is, it's just giving information, then that's all we should do. But when God sent out his apostles, he sent them out, not in word only, but in power. There was something evidenced in their life that showed, man, God's doing, this is God speaking. There's something here. In the apostles' case, there was the miraculous. All the time, the miraculous. He says over and over again, the gospel being preached, confirmed with signs and wonders. All over the place. God wanted to be clear, wanted people to understand, this is not just new information. This is God's information. Now, I'm not saying that that means that every time we preach the gospel, there should be a miracle. I'm not saying that this is what we should, we should even pursue. But I am saying that we should pursue and expect that in the sharing of who Christ is, that he's going to confirm that by something powerful. Specifically, like what we see in John chapter 13. Jesus told his disciples, listen, I'm giving you a new commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is what made the commandment new. The commandment to love your neighbor as yourself was in the Old Testament. That was nothing new. What was new was they'd never seen it lived out before. They'd never seen the love that God commands demonstrated. It was supernaturally demonstrated through the person of Jesus. Jesus says, this is what's going to identify you as my disciples. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. So, so we don't want to under, underscore this. Just giving the information is not what God's calling us to. He wants us to give the information of the gospel, but also, listen, the demonstration of the gospel. It would go out in word and in power and in much assurance. This is what we see also in Corinthians. When Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he talks about the working, the pneumaticos, the work of God's Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how everyone, God wants to use all members of the body. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the specifics of how the expression and the manifestation of the work of the Spirit should be uh, emphasized, prioritized, and even limited in the local church context. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 is. And what's the heart right in the middle? 1 Corinthians 13. What's the message 1 Corinthians 13? It's love. Without love, we can speak in tongues. It means nothing. Without love, we can prophesy. It means nothing. It profits nothing. 
The demonstration of the Spirit of God is not just in the giftedness or the manifestation. It's in the way we love each other. And let's be honest. I'll be honest. It's way easier for me to preach than it is to love. It's hard to love, especially loving like Jesus. I find it really difficult. I'm very much aware of how unable I am to love the way God calls me to love. But I'm also very much aware of what God has promised to give. He's promised us his Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk more about him in a minute. So Philip, he's going where no one else wants to go. He's preaching this message in the power of God's Spirit. It says in verse 8, And as this is happening, there's great joy in that city. That's the city of Samaria. Joy. Now Luke uses the word joy. There is a, a word he could have used that would have maybe been more like happiness. But there's a difference between joy and happiness. You know, happiness has to do with a change of circumstances. Like we say happenstance, or there's that word happenstance. So happiness comes with a change of circumstances. Joy comes with a change of perspective. And this is what's happening to the Samaritans. Their perspective is being changed. Their eyes are being opened as they're hearing the gospel. Especially in the context that they've lived. Look at verse 9. It says, but there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Now, some of your versions might say magic or magic arts. It's a better translation, actually. Because there's a word for sorceries that's often translated New Testament. It's a Greek word, pharmakia. It means where we get the word pharmacy, drug use. It has to do with more of potions and such. Magic arts had more to do with incantations and manipulations. So this guy was a magician, basically. Don't think pulling the rabbit out of a hat. Think, seriously, think Harry Potter conjuring up spirits and supernatural things demonically. So he's that kind of magician, Okay. And so what he, what he does is he he's, has this great influence. His, his magic has brought him some really great influence among these people. And remember, the Samaritans are people who are supposed to believe in the God of Israel. Now, Jesus told them clearly, right? When Jesus is ministering to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he says to her, you worship what you do not know. He says, listen, he says, salvation's of the Jews, we worship what we know. So in other words, we have the revelation of God, we know the God that we're supposed to worship, at least in theory, uh, but you guys don't. You worship what you don't know. You're confused about things. This was evident, the fact that they would have a magician and say, this guy's the power of God. He's the power of God incarnate. So you're talking about a pretty seriously cultic environment that Philip goes into and starts doing these miracles. Well, what does it say? Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Uh, it's interesting to me that, that Luke records that, that sort of the tenor of Simon's message was the kingdom and the name, both things which have to do with the authority of God. The kingdom, this is where God reigns. The, 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 what happens when God has complete influence over the situation? That's the kingdom of God, his sphere of influence, where he reigns. 
And what about the name? The name has to speak of the authority of Jesus. Jesus showed that he was the authority of God. It's interesting because we tend to uh, preach Jesus in kind of relational terms, not authoritative terms. But, but Philip, or, yeah, Philip's preaching with these authoritative terms, and these guys are getting saved. There's, in spite of the fact that they're this really cultic influence, many, if not most of these guys, are getting saved. Now, now I want to point out something as well. The, the, you notice it talks about Simon that they all gave him great heed, or they all, uh, to whom they all gave heed in verse 10. It says that about uh, Simon. And it says a similar thing about Philip in verse 6, that with one accord they heeded the things spoken by Philip. It's interesting because the word that's used there in both places is a word that means like to be spellbound. Like you, you just think, i gotta, I got to hear whatever this guy has to say. And so it's kind of like what, was happening, what had happened previously then with this deceiver and this magician, uh, Simon, was now happening as these guys were hearing the gospel. And it's important to recognize that the miracles did grab their attention. The miracles gave, uh, caused them to take heed to Philip, but it was the gospel that caused them to believe in God. It was the gospel that changed them. This is important. Because no matter what we do, no matter how loving we are, no matter how much, how powerfully God uses us, and I hope God does more powerful things in our midst. I really do. I hope God does more supernatural stuff in our midst. But no matter how much, how much power gifts are shown or how much even love we show, people have to hear the gospel to believe. They have to understand the gospel. And so they did. They're, they're radically saved. Now, in fact, interesting enough, it says in verse 13 that even Simon himself also believed, it says, and when he was baptized, notice it says he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Interesting, Luke uses this word continued. It sounds kind of casual, but it actually means he like diligently clung to him. So he's just obsessed with the miracles that uh, Philip's doing, and that's going to be important in a second. So verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles were at Jerusalem, or the apostles who were at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them. So they want to say, wow, okay, someone actually went to Samaria? Someone actually told them that the Messiah had come, that Jesus is here? And those people actually believed? It actually happened? How, how did that work? Peter and John, you guys got to go check this stuff out. So they go and check it out. What does it say? Verse, five, uh, verse 15. Peter and John, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 16. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that... uh, one of the ways people have tried to interpret this, if they, they try to say that, okay, what happened here was the Samaritans actually didn't become Christians until the apostles came. So they weren't actually born again. They actually didn't come to saving faith until the apostles came. That's one way people have tried to interpret this. I think it's pretty painfully obvious from the text that's not what happened. If these guys had received the gospel, they did believe, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. But Luke uses the terms the Holy Spirit had, had not fallen upon them. 
Now, it's interesting that it says that, that Peter and John, they, when they go there, they pray for them. And in verse 17, it says they lay hands on them. And the fact that they laid hands on these guys shows that they had confidence that, that the Samaritans actually did have saving faith. You didn't lay hands on people unless you're confident that something was sufficient. Um, the, the whole idea of laying out of hands is this picture of, I'm agreeing uh, that, that in, in authority that this is, is this way and this is this way. So like when the, like the priests in the Old Testament would lay their hand on the sinner and lay their hand on the goat, and basically, you know, to, to, so that sin could be atoned for. It's kind of like, I agree that this is a, a, a sufficient sacrifice, and I, I see that this person has done it, uh, brought that on his account. And so it was kind of an authoritative thing. So you didn't do that unless you were convinced of something. So in a sense, they had kind of examined these guys and thought, man, these guys have saving faith, but they haven't received the Spirit like we received the Spirit on Pentecost. So what's going on? Now, Notice as well, it says that they prayed that they would receive the Spirit. They didn't say, they didn't, the Bible doesn't say they prayed that, okay, Lord, we just pray, are they really Christians? Or, Lord, we just pray, can they actually be saved, you know? He said, pray, pray, we, they pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, remember, Samaritans were the ones nobody wanted to go to, the ones that they would thought would never become Christians. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, that he, that is God, is able to save to the uttermost no matter who the people are, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Jesus can save anybody. And the apostles are beginning to see this. Wow. He was, he was serious when he said that you're going to have power and go out to Jerusalem, Judea, and even Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus was serious about that. He actually can save those people. And so they pray for them. They lay hands on them. Now, it's also important to recognize that this idea of the Holy Spirit falling upon somebody or coming upon somebody was something that in Peter's mind, for sure, was a common experience for all believers. Remember in Acts chapter 2, when he's preaching the gospel to the Jews after Pentecost, right? The Jews who saw Pentecost happen. It says in verse uh, 38 of chapter 2, Peter says to these guys, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I underscored the word gift for a reason we'll come back to in a minute. Now, it's important to recognize, too, that when Jesus taught about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he talked about not just what we would experience, but what the Holy Spirit would do. Notice the direction he talks about, about the work of the Spirit in John chapter 7. Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So they had to wait till Jesus was, he, he had been crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven before the Holy Spirit was sent. But notice what it says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. If I have a cup in my hand, and I pour that cup over, and water comes out, what, where did the water have to be first before it comes out? Have to be in, right? So, so here's a reality, okay? 
There was an expectation. Jesus taught about this expectation. The, the, after Pentecost, the, the, the um, apostles and the believers expected this thing to happen, which was when a person was born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit wouldn't just come and you think, well, I hope, he, I hope the Spirit dwells in me. But there would be an outward expression of that. Now, our Pentecostal friends, and I, mean, I use that in the, very, the most formal uh, way to define that word, they, there are some Pentecostal friends who would say, well, see, to be a real Christian, you have to have this kind of experience where you, uh, you speak in tongues or you prophesy. And I think there's no doubt that these guys here were doing something outward because we'll see this in the context in a second. So they say this, but here's, here's where we disagree with our Pentecostal brothers, okay? These guys were already saved, not because they had this experience. They had this experience because they were already saved. And don't forget as well what God's doing here. Remember, the Jews had the mindset, the Jews, all the Christians up to this point in church history were all Jewish people who became Christians, okay? And they had this mindset that, that basically God wasn't going to save anybody but them. And so the whole idea that Samaritans would actually become followers of Jesus was a mind-blowing to them. So they're wanting to say, okay, Lord, you've done this. If they're really Christians, then you should do for them what you did for us. I.e., the Holy Spirit should come upon them. And so that's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon these guys. And I want you to notice as well, it says verse, in verse 17 that the Holy Spirit came upon them when the apostles laid hands, when they said, look, this, these guys have really been believers. Now, this is also important. We'll probably talk about this, I'm guessing, with some questions afterwards. But in, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews lists the laying out of hands as an elementary principle. It's like the basics. It's like, you know, Christianity 101, what every believer should know. He says, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation, the first things of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. In other words, these are all basic things that you should already understand, he's saying to the Hebrew Christians he's writing to. Now, let's be honest, aren't these all things that people debate about today? And they're the most basic things. Now, I'm only going to talk right now about the laying on of hands very briefly. The debate is, or, or, or the conflict is, is people get this mindset of, oh, the apostles had power, so if they touched somebody, all this radical stuff would happen. Now, if we can just, that power had to have been passed down to somebody, because God wants us all to experience the work of the Spirit, so let's lay hands on people. Now, what this means is, is that there's a whole influence within Christian circles that, that where people think, oh, the reason you haven't had the Holy Spirit come upon you is because someone didn't lay hands on you and pray. That's not what the Bible teaches. This is a situation where, listen, a situation where people are trying to create a doctrine over something that's described in Scripture, but not prescribed in Scripture. Do you know what I mean by that? Described, like we're reading in history what happened. Prescribed is you need to do this thing, a command in Scripture. You guys following me so far? Yeah? So, so here's what we need to understand about what's going on here. The, these guys saw, wow, God's actually saving Samaritans. He's saving Samaritans. And in saving Samaritans, 
if they're really saved, if they really, then they should have the same promise. They lay hands on them saying, we believe they're saved. And God does just that. They receive the Holy Spirit. And there's some sort of sign of this because it says in verse 18 that when Simon saw that they lay on a, a, of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was giving, then he offered them money, which we'll get to in a second. Now, I put these other two verses on there because notice it says, do not neglect the gift that is in you. This is Paul writing to Timothy, which was given to you by prophecy with, notice, the laying on of hands of the eldership. Paul refers to a similar thing in 2 Timothy, therefore I remind you, again talking to Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, here's, here's the reality. The, the two words for gift, both in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, are the word charisma, where we get the word charismatic, uh, where, where we get the word charisma. <laughs> you know, this, it's this idea of the work of the Spirit or the gift that God's given by the work of His Spirit. Okay? Now, here's what we see described right here. That Paul is commanding Timothy, you need to use the gift that God's given you. Now, what that gift was probably had to do with like pastoring and teaching and that kind of thing. That's what Timothy was doing. But that gift was received through the laying on of hands. Now, the reason I bring this up is we don't want to act like it's wrong to lay hands and pray that people receive gifts of the Spirit. It's not wrong at all. If you have an inclination towards a ministry, or if we see that you might have an inclination towards a ministry, it's totally appropriate to go before the elders and say, would you guys pray for me and lay hands on me? But also, the laying on of hands, listen has to do with the symbol of saying, with authority, this person is called of God. This is why Paul also tells Timothy, don't lay hands on anybody too quickly. You know, someone thinks, I, I want to go out there and preach the gospel. I want to be a missionary or I want to be a, a pastor or whatever the case might be. Well, awesome. But don't be quick to go, yeah, amen, just go do it. So, so I'm bringing this up because it's important we recognize that we're not talking about something magical. That's what the mistake that Simon made. We'll see that in a second. We're talking about that God is wanting to say, here's the authority. It was the authority of the gospel that they believed, the authority of Jesus, that brought the Samaritans into the kingdom. They already had the Holy Spirit. I believe God waited to have the Holy Spirit come upon them in any way powerful so that the apostles could go and confirm, hey, God has actually saved the Samaritans. So, quickly moving on. Verse 18. Simon sees the Holy Spirit has been given through the laying on of hands. So what does he do? He offers the apostles money, saying, hey, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But that's what Peter says. Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now remember I said, notice the, the, the word in Acts chapter 2 underscored the word gift then. You guys remember that? That's a different word than charisma. But it's the same word that's used here in verse 20. It's a word, doria. And it's a word, listen, that specifically means something that can only be given by grace. In other words, it specifically means it's like a gratuity, something that can never be earned, something that's never, you're never obligated to receive. In other words, you can't, you can't demand from anybody. You guys following me? Now, the reason this is important is because he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, the fact that the Holy Spirit himself would dwell in us and work through us. He's not talking about specific gifts of the Spirit. Are you guys following me? Okay? And so what he's, what he's trying to say to Simon here is he's saying, Simon, man, uh, you are, you're dead wrong here. You can't purchase this. This is not some magical power. And this is important to see because nowadays, unfortunately, a lot of what happens in Christendom, a lot of the stuff you see like in religious television, is this kind of charlatry. It's this kind of kind of magical, let's do something, you know, watch this, someone swoops their hand and people fall over, all this kind of stuff. And look, we, we can laugh at that, but here's the reality. People believe God's actually doing something. And they get deceived into believing that that guy's from God, and that guy oftentimes is preaching something that's totally far from God. I'm not saying there's not a legitimate place where God does supernatural stuff. I've seen God do supernatural stuff. God still is in the supernatural stuff business. But I'm talking about this kind of charlatry that is more like Simon, this magician, than it is like the apostles. So they say to him, look, man, you can't buy this with money. You can't buy something that can only be a gift of grace. Peter says to him, verse 12, or verse 21, You neither have part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Whoa, that's harsh. A dude's like a new convert, man. Come on, Peter. Mellow out. You need to hang out with John more often. He seems to be nice. Not me, John, the Apostle John. But here's what seems to be going on here. Peter is having, uh, he is, he is having insight into Simon's heart that you wouldn't know naturally. He's probably exercising what we would call, oh, we'll come back to that, what we would call a discerning of spirits, to recognize that the things that have happened in Simon's heart uh, were not from the Holy Spirit. What he's saying there is demonic, and that this guy is still, in fact, the fact that he says, um, you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity, that could be what we call a word of knowledge, where we have insight into somebody's uh, thinking processes or somebody's motives that you couldn't know naturally. The fact that Simon knows he's caught out will, will, will kind of affirms the fact that, that he's seen something uh, that's legitimate here. But this is something that's supernatural. So the reason I say this is that, you know, it's not necessarily a good practice to follow Peter in the sense of just kind of calling out people every time you think that they're off. If you're going to really say something this specific about a person's heart, please make sure that you've had a word of knowledge, okay? Because, you, you know, you, you, the guy might make a, an unbelie- a new believer might be asking a legitimate question. Just might be kind of like, oh, I didn't know. Do you see what I'm saying? But here, here's what we're seeing uh, in this situation is it's pretty obvious that Simon, the magician, is demonstrating that he's a false convert. He actually wasn't saved. In fact, look at it says in verse 24, Peter had said, you pray to God and, and just to seek repentance, basically. You pray to God and see that your heart might be forgiven. And Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So Simon demonstrates a fear here. 
He seems to recognize that, uh, you know what, man, I blew it here, I'm caught out. But he's not necessarily showing repentance. This is one of the things you see. I mean, you look at Judas, right? Judas betrays the Lord. What happens? He realizes, oh man, I've, I've shed innocent blood. So what does he do? He goes back to the priests. He doesn't go to Jesus, does he? And in despair, he actually hangs himself. See, this is, this is the difference, guys, between fearing the judgment of God and repenting in light of the judgment of God. Fearing the judgment of God leads you to despair, leads you to sort of back away. Okay, would you approach God for me? It leads you to look to a person to mediate for you. But repentance is when you go, oh, God, have mercy, and you turn to him. The false convert might be afraid of God's judgment. But the true convert always turns back to God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. He seeks God. She seeks God for his restoration and forgiveness. That's the difference. That brings me to this. Jesus, in Matthew 13, Jesus is explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares. Look what he says. He says, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy sows them. Uh, who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered together and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out all uh, out of all his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and he will cast them into the fire, a furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus talked about in this parable. A man sows good seed in his field, but at night an enemy came and sowed bad seed in his field. They both grew up together. See, wheat and tares look pretty similar. It's not until it's time for them to actually bear fruit that you can kind of tell the difference. But in the parable, the servants of the, the, the man who owned the field said, should we tear up the tares? And the man says, no, 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 don't tear them up. Wait till the harvest, lest you tear up the wheat with it. And so Jesus explains that parable. The reason I'm connecting this parable to what we're talking about here is, here's Philip, and in taking the gospel to a place where nobody else wants to go, and, and seeing God do radical things even in the most kind of cultic and demonic sort of atmosphere, and seeing the Holy Spirit be poured out upon these guys just as he would be, he was upon the other apostles, that even in the midst of that, there's going to be false converts. And I share that because it's not up to us to try to identify false converts, though sometimes it can be pretty obvious. But it is up to each of us, as Jesus said, he has an ear to hear, let him hear. To examine ourselves, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, examine yourself to see if you are indeed in the faith. Make sure you're not a false convert. Now, here's what's hard about talking about this. This is something that Adam and I have been talking about the last couple of weeks, being in 2 Peter 2, and such a heavy chapter, and then talking about stuff like this. We, we, we are concerned, one, that people in our church that may be false converts are too hard-hearted to admit it. That's scary to think that they can still be totally comfortable, and, and we don't even know for sure if they're weed or tares. 
But the other thing is that those who are truly converts would be condemned by this. Oh no, I'm not a convert. I'm not saved. I'm not saved. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. Do something for me, John. <laughs> and we really want to encourage you, listen. If God can save a Samaritan, he can save you. <laughs> if God shows his, his willingness to let his people suffer so that the gospel would go to the Samaritan sooner rather than later, know that God can reach you. God can reach me. Know that God knows how to save. As we heard earlier, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him because he always makes intercession. Do you know the Bible's teaching there in, in Hebrews 7, in a very real sense, Jesus is praying for us before the Father? And his intercession is not so much with his words like, oh, come on, Father, don't, don't snuff him out now. Like the Father's always angry. Oh, those stinking people. And Jesus is really nice. But they're so, I love them. It's not one of those scenes, okay? The intercession is not with his words. It's with his wounds. That he's before the Father and saying, Father, I, I, I died for that one. They believe. And him, the Father rejoices. He, joys, he rejoices. No, the Lord loves us. And he wants us to experience what the, what the apostles experienced, the experience what the Samaritans experienced, where we hear the gospel, we know we're saved, and the Holy Spirit flows out of us so that process of being disciples and make disciples continues. Amen?